Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 65. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on March 22nd, 2022, in my bedroom closet in New Orleans. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Before we get to today's episode, a number of items bear mentioning. The first is that the schedule will get a bit irregular in the next few weeks. As I mentioned last time, I'm going to try to get through Jamestown to 1622 or so as quickly as I can in the real-world calendar. And as part of that, I'm going to experiment with shorter and more frequent episodes. So I'll try to average more than once a week over the next month or more, even if I don't quite manage two a week maybe one every four or five days. The second is that today, March 22nd, 2022, is the 400th anniversary of the start of the Second Anglo-Powhatan War. On March 22nd, 1622, Opa Kenkana would spring his lethal trap. Sadly, you'll have to wait a few weeks for our episode on that gruesome day. No doubt I should have timed it a bit better. The third point is that it is the 401st anniversary of the peace treaty between the Pilgrims of Plymouth Colony and the Wampanoag Confederacy. Apart from the happy coincidence of the date, the moment is worth mentioning because the treaty and peace between the Plymouth colonists and the Wampanoags would last 50 years. A track record of cooperation and coexistence with the Indians that puts to shame Jamestown and virtually every other European incursion into North America. That's at least one reason why Americans want to think of Plymouth as their founding colony rather than Jamestown. The fourth is that listener Fraser from New Mexico did a little work and came up with an estimated population for Santa Fe in 1610, roughly a thousand, which means that my guess in last week's episode that Santa Fe was smaller than St. Augustine and Jamestown in 1610 was absolutely wrong. This comes from a document put together by the United States Department of Agriculture that purports to estimate state populations from the earliest moments of European settlement. Why precisely this is the task of the USDA is far beyond my feeble understanding of such things. I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you who want to do more work. And last... But definitely not least, today is my beautiful daughter's birthday. She will soon be off to an exciting new chapter in her life, which means she won't be living near Austin, and we'll miss her terribly. But it's the right thing to do, and I couldn't be more proud. It's been a few episodes since we really had a lot of dying, unless you think that 50 or so Mohawks at Ticonderoga is a lot. Believe me, it isn't. Last week, we looked through the wide-angle lens at the world in the second decade of the 1600s and the timeline of the Jamestown project between John Smith's departure in 1609 and Opa attack in March 1622. It would be useful to listen to that episode before this one, and it wouldn't hurt to go back at least to Jamestown and the Powhatans Part 5, which we released on February 4th, 2022. We last saw John Smith on October 4, 1609, when he departed for England, never to return to Virginia again. 
Smith had without a doubt saved the colony more than once in its first two years, and out of gratitude, by which I mean petty churlishness, had been demoted, indicted, and severely burned in a terrible accident or maybe a failed assassination attempt, depending on whom you believe. It is not terribly difficult to imagine his thoughts as he sailed out the James River that day. At Smith's departure, there were around 500 English at Jamestown, the vast majority of whom were New World tenderfoots. The veteran rank-and-file colonists, who were not permitted to return home, knew that Smith's leadership had been wise. David Price, in his book Love and Hate in Jamestown, quotes William Fetaplace, a colonist who had served under Smith's command. What shall I say, but thus we lost him, that in all his proceedings made justice his first guide and experience his second, ever hating baseness, sloth, pride, and indignity more than any dangers. That never allowed more for himself than his soldiers with him, that upon no danger would send them where he would not lead them himself, that would never see us in want of what either he had or could by any means get us, whose adventures were our lives, whose losses are deaths. There are many historians who do not like Smith for all the usual anachronistic reasons and because they don't believe his own writings, which could drift into the sensational and self-promotional. In this, they are implicitly siding with the gentleman who didn't like Smith because of ambition they thought crass and because he didn't automatically respect them for their social station. Testimony from common people like Fetaplace, though, demonstrates that Smith was, by his 30th year, a leader who earned the loyalty of the men he commanded. In that regard, he reminds me of Francis Drake, which, of course, will come as no surprise to any long-standing and only barely attentive listener to this podcast. On Smith's departure, the Jamestown Council consisted of George Percy, John Martin, Francis West, and John Ratcliffe. They elected Percy to be the top man. Percy's approach to leadership could not have been more different than Smith's. Here's Lane's account, quote, Like Smith, Percy had put in a stint fighting in the Netherlands, but otherwise the two men could not have been more different. Percy derided his predecessor as an ambitious, unworthy, and vainglorious fellow, where Smith thought it necessary for Englishmen to adapt to the realities of a different land. Percy, like so many others, preferred to bring the ways of London society to Virginia. He felt obliged to maintain, as he put it, a continual and daily dining table in Jamestown for gentlemen of fashion, and then had to ask his eldest brother to pay the bills. He also sent for and received a new wardrobe, comporting with the august nature of his position. Five suits, adorned in front with taffeta and stuffed with canvas. A dozen pairs of shoes, stockings and socks, plus ribbon for shoestrings. Six pairs of boots, nine pairs of gloves, a dozen shirts from Holland, Three hats, two with silk and gold bands, a dozen handkerchiefs, six nightcaps, a sword hatched with gold, and six pairs of garters. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. Back to me. Once the locals understood that Smith was gone, remember the colonists told Pocahontas that he had died, Powhatan, Powhatan, saw his chance. 
The attacks began at the English outpost at Nansamon, near the southern bank of the James, where the Nansamon River flows in, just west of today's Norfolk. The commander, John Martin, fled to Jamestown on a pretext, leaving Martin Sycamore, apparently no relation to John Ratcliffe, whom you may remember was born John Sycamore, in command. Seventeen other men in the Nansamon garrison deserted together, and they were never heard from again. Martin Sycamore took another group of men on an expedition from the settlement to trade for food. A few days later, they were found dead, their mouths stuffed with bread. The remaining men at Nansamon withdrew to Jamestown, which at least had a defensible stockade. Percy sent Ratcliffe to Point Comfort on the northern bank of the James near the Chesapeake to build a fort there in fulfillment of the long-standing plan to surveil the mouth of the river, lest the Spanish make a move against the colony, but also to relieve the pressure on the dwindling supplies of food at Jamestown. Dispersion increased the area over which food could be foraged and also increased the risk of Indian attacks. You may remember that Ralph Lane did the same thing at his Roanoke colony in 1585-86. Now back to Price, quoting with some small clarifications embedded. The council had spent most of September on its hearings against Smith, and nobody had shown much industriousness in the meantime. All 14 of the colony's fishing nets had been allowed to rot in the water and were useless. The harvest had been eaten. The storehouse had been drawn down to support the sailors from six ships for the extra time that they had been kept waiting while the council took depositions against Smith. Daniel Tucker, the supply officer, informed Percy that there was no more than three months' ration left, and that was assuming a meager allowance for each man of half a can of meal a day. Back to me. The shortage of food amplified almost immediate suffering at the colony. One of the ships of the third party, the Diamond, had carried plague and had tossed at least 30 bodies over the side on the crossing. Disease spread rapidly that fall. Yersinia pestis, the bacteria that causes plague, loves cool, wet autumn weather. Under such conditions, it reproduces rapidly in the stomachs of fleas. When a flea with a stomach full of germs bites an animal, including a human animal, to drink blood, it vomits bacteria into the victim's bloodstream. Yes, plague comes from flea vomit. The colonists began to weaken and die even before the food ran out. Then fortune appeared to smile. Thomas Savage, the English boy Smith had left with the paramount chief Powhatan to learn Algonquin and serve as an emissary, appeared at the fort with four or five native men bearing a gift of venison for Percy. A bit later, probably in November, Powhatan sent an invitation to visit and trade for food. The desperate English were all too willing to believe that salvation was at hand. Percy dispatched Ratcliffe and 30 to 50 men, Price says 50 and James Horn says 30, by ship to call on Powhatan. Powhatan courteously greeted Ratcliffe, who predictably bungled the encounter. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that Ratcliffe had repeatedly and incorrectly believed that he should project beneficence and lordliness in his dealings with Powhatan. So he failed to secure himself and his men by trading hostages and underscored his desperation by offering too much for too little. 
Sensing desperation, Powhatan directed Ratcliffe and his escort, some number of the English had stayed aboard the ship, to a house about a half mile from the river. There they bartered copper and beads for corn. Now back to Price. Accounts differ as to what happened next. By one report, the natives began cheating the English by pushing up the bottoms of the baskets, so that less corn would appear to make a full basket. The English and the natives quarreled over this, with the result that Powhatan left the scene with his wives, his young guest, Henry Spellman, and a German named Samuel, who was still living with him. As the English were carrying their baskets the half-mile back to the ship, native men who were hidden in the cornfields along the way attacked and killed them. Captured alive, Ratcliffe was tied to a stake in front of a large fire. This time it was women, rather than men, who carried out the procedure, removing his skin from his flesh with muscle shells and then tossing it into the flames as he watched. Finally, he was burned at the stake. Poor Radcliffe. He had more skin in the game than he realized. The Indians then attacked the ship, now under the command of the aforementioned Fittaplace. Many of them died, and the ship barely escaped down the river. They returned to Jamestown with no food at all and only 16 of the original men. Percy sent Captain James Davis to replace Ratcliffe in command of the fort at Point Comfort and sent Francis West, one of the councilmen in the colony's best ship, the Swallow, to trade with the Patawomacs up the Chesapeake at the mouth of the Potomac. They were unwilling merchants, so West motivated them by chopping off a couple of heads in various extremities. Now loaded with food, the Swallow sailed down the Chesapeake, and hearing from the garrison at Point Comfort of the extreme deprivation at Jamestown, West's men refused to go back. Facing mutiny, West pointed his ship for the open ocean and went back to England. Captain Davis watched from Point Comfort in what must have been bottomless dismay as Jamestown's last best hope to survive sailed away. Powhatan now stepped up his war. His warriors cut the moorings of the English boats at Jamestown, which pinned the remaining colonists in the fort. The Indians picked off settlers when they left the stockade. And then he attacked Hog Isle, where the settlers had released perhaps 60 free-roaming pigs the previous spring. Pigs being unbelievably productive, there were now a couple of hundred there, a huge natural meat locker. But the settlers had not harvested them out of fear that they would be killed if they ventured forth. And now even those pigs were gone. The Powhatans killed every pig on the island. Now it got really ugly. The next bit is not for little kids. So if any are listening with you, this might be a good time to pause. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Okay, back to Price. Quote, Some hungry colonists robbed the storehouse, for which Percy had them put to death. As the stores dwindled, the colonists looked to any source of food that was at hand. First, they consumed the colony's horses, cats, and dogs. Next were the rats and mice. Then came the leather of their shoes and boots. A few hardy souls left the fort to tromp through the snowy woods in search of snakes, if they did not make it back, it was that many fewer mouths to feed. 
A quirk of Elizabethan fashion among the English gentlemen provided a source of nourishment for some. Around their necks, they wore a ruff, a pleated circular collar usually nine inches wide or more. To keep the ruffs in properly stiff form, the gentlemen of their servants washed them in starch brought over from the old country. The starch turned out to be edible, and so down the hatch it went in the form of a gluey porridge. Now famine began to look pale and ghastly in every face, so that nothing was spared to maintain life and to do those things which seem incredible, Percy recalled. Under the right conditions, it was a short step from eyeing rats and mice to eyeing the freshly fallen corpses. An untold number of the English fed on the meat of their dead fellows, after one native was killed during an attack and buried. A group of colonists dug him up several days later and ate him. A man by the name of Collins, probably Henry Collins, gentleman, cast a hungry stare at his pregnant wife and murdered her in her sleep. He then chopped apart her remains, salted them, and feasted on them. He stopped short of consuming his own child, his body he had first removed from his mother's womb, and dropped into the river during the cover of night. It is pleasing to note that when Collins' depravity was discovered, Percy had him hung by his thumbs with weights on his feet until he confessed, and then had him executed. Virginia Company propaganda would later seek to minimize the incident, claiming that Collins had killed his wife because he hated her, not because he was hungry, that's a good reason, that he had dismembered her only to conceal the evidence, and that a search of his house had refuted his excuse of hunger by uncovering, quote, a good quantity of meal, oatmeal, beans, and peas. For those with the moral compass to keep them from eating other humans, the reward was usually slow death. Some dug their own graves, lay in them, and waited for the end to come. Others ran away to the natives, expecting succor from the colony's enemies, but those days were over. They found instead that death awaited them in the natives' hands. By March 1610, six months after Smith had gone, 60 colonists out of 500 in Jamestown were left alive. Plus, of course, Francis West and the lucky 36 in his party who had absconded. The mortality rate for the winter, in other words, had been around 80%. Back to me, as spring sprung on the coast of Virginia, Powhatan lifted the siege. His own human resources were not infinite, and the Indians needed all hands for their own spring planting. Percy finally felt safe enough to venture forth to Point Comfort, where he was, quote, dumbfounded to discover that the men there were hale and hearty. They'd been living well on Chesapeake Bay crabs in their own hogs. The starving time was a profound failure of leadership. Had the Toffs not wasted the crucial six weeks of late summer and early fall pursuing their vendetta against Smith, the sailors would have left much earlier and consumed much less food. Had Percy understood the importance of dispersion to the management of the food supply and sent large groups of armed colonists to establish other outposts, such as at Point Comfort, the food at Jamestown would have lasted much longer. Had they taken care of their fishing nets and confronted Powhatan competently, they might have avoided the worst of the Indian attacks. Had they brought hogs over from Hog Isle when they had the chance and managed to protect some of them, they would have had bacon to eat instead of 
rats and corpses. Now recall that the previous summer of 1609, the third supply had been disrupted by a fierce storm, probably a hurricane, and its flagship, the Sea Venture, had been cast away on the then uninhabited island of St. George's in the Bermuda Archipelago, presumed lost forever. The sea venture had carried Thomas Gates, the appointed governor of the colony, essentially the land commander, Sir George Summers, the admiral of the venture and therefore the sea commander, Christopher Newport, the actual captain of the sea venture, William Strachey, who would eventually write much of what we know about the sea venture wreck Bermuda and Jamestown in those years, John Rolfe, who would do more than anybody else after John Smith to ensure the survival of English settlement in Virginia, and Namantuck, Thomas Savage's counterpart who had gone to England with Powhatan's blessing. Namantuck would die on the island under strange circumstances, perhaps at the hands of another Indian along on the voyage, but most of the English would survive. Flooding with water in the middle of a storm, Summers intentionally ran the sea venture aground, luckily wedging it between two rocks that held it firm just off the north shore of St. George's Island. The weather calmed almost immediately, and the 150 passengers and crew were able to get ashore, along with as much of their supplies as they could transfer. There they found paradise on earth of a sort. The island was covered with palmetto trees, the hearts of which are purportedly delicious. Can't say I've had it myself. Fish ran in vast schools. Birds that had no fear of men were everywhere. And feral hogs released by or escaped from Spanish mariners years before rooted their way through the woods. Food would not be a problem. The castaways worked efficiently, salvaging everything they could of the Sea Venture's timbers, rigging, iron parts, and so forth. Gates assigned others to get to work building shelters from saplings and palmetto leaves. They dispatched hunting parties to capture wild pigs, which they corralled for future consumption. The ship's carpenters repurposed the longboat, adding a mast, oars, and a deck, converting it into a small bark that, in theory, could sail to Virginia and get help. Gates recruited a crew of eight, and they set sail in early September. They were never heard from again. By November, it was clear to the Bermudans that no relief from Jamestown would be at hand, and the ships from the third supply that had reached Jamestown had returned to London with John Smith. Gates on Bermuda, of course, had no idea that conditions at Jamestown were as catastrophically bad as they were, and everybody else in the English world thought that the sea venture was lost and that Gates and everybody else on board had perished. And not just the English world. The Spanish thought it too, their intelligence network in England having picked up the news. If the passengers and crew of the Sea Venture were to get off Bermuda and go to Virginia, they would have to do it themselves. Unfortunately, their ranks were divided. A group of commoners decided that it would be much better to settle Bermuda than to go to Virginia. They argued that having been cast back into a state of nature, old formulations of governance no longer applied, including especially the authority of Gates and Summers. Everybody should have a say. 
These dangerously leveling ideas were suppressed by force, including the threat of execution. A couple of dissenters ran off into the actual state of nature, but most of the proto-Democrats sullenly went back to work as directed. Some scholars have pointed to this episode as another example of the early roots of popular sovereignty in the New World, since the resistors apparently cited a philosophical basis for casting off the chain of command. That is probably over-reading things. Doesn't it seem more likely that they didn't want to leave and maybe didn't want to work, and they tossed out rationales to justify the conclusion that they'd already reached? We've seen a lot of that lately. So while plague and famine and war were dealing death to the settlers in Virginia, Gates decided that they had to build ships if they were ever to get off Bermuda. Cobbling together the parts of the Sea Venture, which had been a big ship at 300 tons and working all winter and spring, the castaways managed to build two small pinnaces, which they aptly named the Deliverance and the Patience. Around 140 of the original 150, a rather remarkable track record of survival, sailed for Virginia in early May 1610, arriving about 10 days later. Meanwhile, unbeknownst either to Gates or to Percy at Jamestown, Lord de la War, the new governor appointed on the presumption that Gates was dead, had set sail from the Isle of Wight on April 11th. At Point Comfort, the ex-castaways learned from the relatively well-fed garrison that the rest of the third supply had arrived the previous summer, which had been very much an open question, and also that 80% of them had died. Now let's go to James Horn's description. Making their way upriver to the fort, Gates and Summers found the palisades had been torn down, the church ruined and unfrequented, and empty houses rent up and burnt for firewood. Entering the town, they saw what appeared rather as the ruins of some ancient fortification that any people living might now inhabit. Only 60 or so settlers remained alive and were described as lamentable to behold. Those able to raise themselves from their beds to meet Gates and his men looked like anatomies, meaning skeletons, crying out, we are starved, we are starved. Yet, the deputy governor could do little to relieve them. He had brought only sufficient food from Bermuda to feed his own company during the sea voyage, never imagining the colony would be in such a dreadful state of dearth. Back to me, Gates quickly realized that he would have to abandon the colony. His own provisions were running out. There was no chance that the Indians would give or sell them food, and among his own people... There were still the agitators who had wanted to stay in Bermuda rather than go to Virginia. They had now, pretty obviously, been proved right. Staying would mean only more hunger, more internal dissension, and more death. By June 7th, the four available pinnaces were loaded up, the fort's cannon were buried, and the colony set off down the James River toward home. Faithfully, Gates vetoed a proposal to burn down the abandoned village and its fortifications, perhaps wanting to preserve the option of the English to reoccupy it. No doubt the Indians were watching on that June day. It would have appeared to them as though Powhatan and Opakankanaw had expelled the English from Virginia. 
In a twist of fate with massive reverberations for all, English and Indian alike, the fleeing settlers dropped anchor for a few hours just off today's Newport News, Virginia, waiting for the tide to turn. Then they spotted a longboat headed toward them, up the river on the flood tide. It was an advance party of Lord de la War's fourth supply. I come back to you now. At the turn of the tide. Behind them were three ships, 150 colonists, and a huge amount of food and other supplies. De la War, now the top man, ordered Gates to turn his four pinnaces around and return to the fort. One can imagine the rage and frustration and exhaustion of the survivors of the starving time, and for that matter, the Sea Venture castaways. If only they had burned the place down. De La War arrived at Jamestown on June 10th. It had been abandoned only three days. The turnaround in fortune was astonishing. In the space of a month, the population had transformed from 60 dying skeletons, plus the men at Fort Comfort, to 370 well-provisioned, even if disgruntled, colonists. And of course, the war leaders of the Powhatan Confederacy must have been profoundly disappointed to see the English return to life, just like the presumed dead lunatic at the end of any decent slasher movie. This is a good place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe to your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans.com at gmail.com. Until next time.